Lord was telling me something similar to what Christina was just sharing, which I'll get there in a second, but you know when you you could feel it this morning where when you combine the birth of Yeshua and you don't leave out the importance of Israel. It really paints this picture of a, a, a greater fullness of the good news. Because the good news at his birth and the good news of Yeshua isn't really fully completed until he returns. The good news is not just that he's come, although that is everything in some sense, right? Without him coming, he couldn't return. And yet, if we stay there, we miss this cry of Israel and the Jewish people for his kingdom to be manifest on the earth. The fullness of the good news. And so I think that's the beauty that we're experiencing this morning is this greater richness, if you will, of what the angels were declaring to the shepherds on that day in Bethlehem. Hallelujah. Father, I thank you for this privilege of wrestling through all this in our congregation. I thank you even for the tension that brings life so that we won't remain comfortable in our personal expressions of who you are and what you've done. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. Well, thank you, worship team. This uh, setup here is quite unique. In the early synagogues, this isn't so dissimilar, actually. They would often have a horseshoe uh, shape with a bima in the middle. Uh, there might have been a couple circles as well later on. Uh, so if you are uncomfortable being behind me, feel free to move now. There are front row seats always available. <laughs> and uh, so feel free. I'm probably not going to turn around behind me very often. So Dan Juster, who really began Tikkun, our organization. Uh, really, Rich and I both consider ourselves uh, disciples of Dan Juster. Uh, and I remember years ago in the, the basement, Paul can remember this, maybe seven years ago, I don't know, but Dan came 
to speak to us. And he exhorted kingdom living, and many of you may remember this, and he said, to have this expression that gives deference to Israel and gives deference to the church. And I think it's so unique today that maybe this is the best we've ever been able to actually attempt to do that. Uh, This isn't something that's attempted very often (laughs) for whatever reason that we could get into. But I'm excited that we're, we're journeying into this. And when Nick started singing, there was just so much power that came from the Lord when this Jewish man started singing, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And so thank you, Nick, for just being obedient. And, um, and I love your voice as well. So I wanted to say Chag uh, Sameach, Chag Chanukah Sameach which means have a joyous Hanukkah. I want to say Merry Christmas, Merry Messiahmas, Merry Messiahmas, Erev Messiahmas, Shabbat Shalom. Uh, Let's see, I've got Chag Olim Sameach, which is Happy Festival of Lights. Uh, This is a joyous celebration day. Feliz Navidad! All right, muchas gracias. Feliz Navidad. Uh, Jesus Christus, Gloria a Dios! Say! Uh, okay. Uh, I speak many languages. Uh, it's interesting that uh, the title of my message is actually Growing in Deference, which is funny because I was actually going to teach this last week, but then we canceled service because of the ice, which was probably a good thing since people still put their cars in a ditch in this room. Uh, And so it's interesting that he moved it, and really this is what really we're attempting to do this morning. And so I want to talk about growing in deference, and really if you remember my teaching a few weeks ago, I really left off with this growing in deference as this exhortation to our congregation. And I was basing it out of Romans chapter 11 in this famous olive tree analogy that Paul uses to describe Jew and Gentile. And what I was arguing is that to really understand our identity, which this is the crisis when we look in the world today, is identity. People do not know who they are, and they really want to know who they are, and they try to find it on every square inch of the earth, right? And so this pursuit of your own identity is essential to knowing and having true peace, true shalom, happiness, joy, whatever, fill in the blank, right? And what I'm arguing from Paul's olive tree analogy is that if you really want to understand your identity, it doesn't matter who you are, black, white, Jew, Gentile, male, female, young, old, you have to grow in deference for the other. And we'll get into what I mean by deference, respect, honor, It's not just a worldly understanding. We'll get into it. 
But it, this deference can be understood, and I'll, I'll argue this morning that the main point I want to bring, which is really a one-point message with lots of other things, is to grow in deference, I want us to learn Jewish and church history. This is my, my plea. If you want to grow in the Lord, if you don't know the Lord and you want to grow in your identity, I want you to pursue knowledge of Jewish and church history. Now, it's not knowledge unto itself, meaning knowledge unto itself leads to pride and arrogance. And there's a long list of people in the Messianic movement, in the Hebrew Roots movement, in this room, who, when they began to grow, and I'm, 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 see this, I'm raising my hand here, who, when they began to grow in this understanding of Israel and the Jewish roots, also simultaneously began to grow in pride and arrogance. And the church does the same thing in pride and arrogance against Israel and the Jewish people and saying, we don't need them anymore. We've got Jesus. What do we need the Jews for? Right? We've already got it. I'm going to heaven. As if that's our goal. Which is again why it was so important in our expression this morning that you saw that what happened was is when we started connecting with Israel, it wasn't just this only, wow, he was born as a man, which is amazing, but it also connected us with the return and the fullness of his kingdom. Because to your average Christian, it's enough. I've got Jesus. He came. That's it. But to your average Jew, that's not enough. Because they say, where is the fullness of the kingdom of God in the earth? As the, the, the knowledge of God fills the earth, as the waters cover the sea, I don't see it. And that's because the fullness of the good news has not yet come. The fullness of the new covenant is not yet here. And yet the new covenant has broken in. The kingdom is available now, right? Are you following me? And so we have this opportunity to really come in the opposite spirit of pride and arrogance. This is how we combat Satan. Satan, what did he do when he was uh, in the heavenlies with the Lord? He said, I want to steal your identity. He wanted to be God. He was not satisfied with his identity. He wasn't okay with it. He said, I want your identity. It was an identity clash and he lost. And yet, now that he's on the earth, he is trying to steal your identity. And he's trying to prevent you from becoming who God created you to be. He wants you to become someone else. Why? Because then you will not reach the fullness that God created you to be and bring the kingdom to the earth. And this, folks, begins in your marriage. It's not just end-time Jew-Gentile, although it is all about that, 
But as I pointed out in my previous teaching about the garden, it begins with male and female. It begins in the most foundational relationships in your life if you're not married. Because if you can't show deference and respect and honor in your marriage, how in the world are you going to do it for other brothers and sisters on the earth? You won't do it. And you won't respect the creator of the universe either. He's giving us this opportunity through relationships on the earth. This is the second commandment, loving your neighbor, to be able to love him. And he's trying to help us out. Okay. So what I want to do this morning is I want to exhort us into this deference during this holiday season. And I want to specifically exhort us to spread this good news. Because it's interesting that we have Christmas, which is traditionally very Christian, if you hadn't heard. And we have Hanukkah, which is traditionally very Jewish, if you haven't heard. So it's interesting, right? It's pretty cool. We actually have these two coming together on the same night, even. And so maybe God is saying, I want you to wake up to the reality of showing deference for the other one on this particular season. And I want you to use this as an opportunity to bring redemption to the world, to profess the good news, to proclaim who he is. And I'll get into that in a second. First, I want to ask you a question. How many people feel that Yeshua's birth was at Sukkot? Quite a few. Quite a few. I'm actually not sure. And I've done a lot of look into this. Second question. How many people here are pro-life? Okay, more. Hallelujah. I hope the whole room. Pro-life. When you're pro-life, what you're saying is, is that you believe that life begins at conception. Am I right? Hallelujah. Life begins at conception. Well, let me tell you something. The Isaiah 7 miracle of the virgin is that the virgin conceived. Am I right? That's what it says if we looked it up. So actually, when you think about it, the miracle is in the conception. In fact, it's that, as Osher shows beautifully, it's that a virgin betrothed was, that, that she actually conceived, not just a virgin, but she was a virgin who was betrothed to be married to ensure that the, the woman got the earthly, kingly, Davidic line into the sun. And this was God's amazing plan to be able to become a man and get the earthly rights of the Davidic covenant. Because remember that God had promised David that a seed from him would sit on the throne and rule Le'olam Va'ed as we were singing forever and ever. The problem was every single one of King David's sons had died. And they kept dying, and they kept not resurrecting. Until this 
virgin betrothed woman conceived of a man and had Yeshua who goes on to die and raise again. And that's why the fullness needs for him to come back to sit on the throne forever. All right. That one was for free. The point is, is that if you believe he was born at Sukkot, and you rewind nine to ten months, guess what time of the year it is? It's right now. So even if you believe he's born at Sukkot, which many Messianics do, this time of the year is the conception. This is the original miracle. So regardless of whether or not you think he was born on December 25th, there is cause to celebrate during this season. This is the miracle. A virgin betrothed could have a child. And even Asher and Trader says this. Look, I realize in the Messianic movement, the celebration of Christmas is a bit taboo and it's uncomfortable. And I get it. Church history has been horrible and brutal to Israel and the Jewish people. And so they say, I don't want anything to do with it. And you can throw in paganism and whatever. Why, why would you have anything to do with it? I get it. But there is still this reality of the celebration of the birth of the Mashiach, the birth of Yeshua who fulfilled prophecy in Scripture. And without this birth, without this conception, there is no coming kingdom. There is no salvation. There is no fulfillment of the covenants. Hallelujah. So, in my family, we celebrate at Sukkot. We celebrate in December. We celebrate all the time. We celebrate two Shavuot. We celebrate lots of different days because it's a big deal that God became man. It's a big deal that he sent his son to bring the kingdom to the earth. So we celebrate him all the time. Okay. That's my exhortation to this time of year because I realize it's difficult for people. When I say celebrate, I'm not talking about Santa Claus, right? The church doesn't, even the high church, they're not doing Santa Claus. That's the world. That's the world that does that stuff. And I, although I don't have a Christmas tree in my home, if you want to have a Christmas tree, I have no problem with that. But I still have yet to meet anyone who worships the Christmas tree in their home. I, I'm just being real honest here. I've been taking a vote. Somebody in this room, raise your hand. Have you ever met somebody who worships the Christmas tree in their home? Or heard about it? Have you ever heard of anybody? We've never even heard of anybody. <laughs> Guys, it's, like, it's almost like we want to divide. Because you know what? Then I'm more biblical than you are. I'm more spiritual than you are. I have the right revelation and you have the wrong revelation. It's almost like we want to divide from one another. And we don't even know anybody 
who's worshiping a Christmas tree. Again, I don't have one. I'm not saying you, you go get one even. I'm not saying that. I, I, I know the, the stories. I've read it. I know, I've read the scholarship behind it, not the internet of it. The earliest church records actually point to Christmas being in the spring. So it's a whole other thing. Now we've got spring, we've got the fall, we've got the winter. Where's the summer? Okay. It's fun having my brother here. What I want to point out is that God and Yeshua are the foundation of both Christmas and Hanukkah. If you understand and observe them in the right heart, in the right spirit. And we have this unique opportunity in this time of the year because the world in Kansas City, in America, is focused around Christmas, whether you like it or whether you don't like it. Most people don't have to work on Christmas. And most people that I know of are thankful for that, whether they observe Christmas or not. And so what's the cool thing is, and this is what I want to exhort you in, is that we have a unique opportunity to share the good news during this season. It's on people's lips. Happy holidays, even. Even if they go with the kosher happy holidays. You still have this opportunity. How was your break? How was your holiday? I mean, they just said, tell me about the gospel. He who has an ear, let him hear. You can go wherever you want. They just gave you an open door. They know what this season is all about, no matter where they are in their faith. And you have the opportunity, if you will be bold, to share about Yeshua. And I'm not just talking about people you don't know. I'm talking about family, too. Because family, they're the most difficult ones. I mean, I've got 26 of them here. And our goal in sharing the good news, including you, yeah, is that I want us to look at, quote, evangelism, if you even want to use that word, as helping people be conformed into the image of Yeshua. Most of the time we understand evangelism as people that don't know God and we want to tell them about Jesus and get them to pray a prayer. We, we, it's, it's too simple, you know? I see evangelism as helping people to grow into the image of Yeshua. So it actually doesn't matter if they've ever prayed some prayer, or if they've been, quote, walking with God for 50 years. We have an opportunity. The Great Commission is to make disciples, right? Not converts. And so the, the exhortation from Yeshua was to help people become greater disciples. So that doesn't stop when somebody prays some prayer, because we understand salvation in covenantal terms. Work out your Yeshua with fear and trembling. Work out your, this is a growth process. So no matter who, you, what family or friends or coworkers you're interacting with in this season, you have an opportunity, if you're intentional, to help them grow into the image of Messiah. Now, it should put the fear of God in you, like Sam was exhorting us with, which is the beginning of almost everything, right? Because it should put the fear of God in you, because you're like, well, how could I help 
this person here who's further along in their faith, right? Well, I could say that the same way. Like, there are men and women of God in this room who probably should be here, not me. But that doesn't mean you don't have something to bring to the table. Because each one of us is an image bearer. And so we have something to impart and to give. And you have to see yourself. This is true humility to know who you are in God and to see who you are in God and walk in that. And so I want us to use this season to do that. And here's a great question of invitation. Because we often run into people feeling as if we're prideful and arrogant when we talk to them. Eric exhorted us with this question that he had learned, saying to to people that we encounter, we are exploring, meaning our congregation, our small group, whatever, we are exploring how the Jewish faith became a predominantly Gentile faith and what got lost along the way. How a Jewish faith became a Gentile faith and what got lost along the way. It's an inviting question. Come and journey with us and explore this this historical reality. Okay, that was a long, not really an introduction. Uh, But back to my main point of how to grow in deference for one another. And my main point, if you remember, is to learn Jewish and church history, okay? Really, learning Jewish uh, and church history is the get-to-know-you stage in a relationship. <laughs> you know the get-to-know-you stage, right? We have, you want to have coffee? Sure, yeah, yeah. And then you get together, and what do you do? You ask each other questions about your history. Am I right? So that's what happens when you come into a relationship with one another, and that's how you grow in deference for the person is because you know more about them. The people that you're closest to are the ones that know your history the most. So it's the same way to grow in deference for Israel and the church. And this is interesting because we're, it's a complicated time in history because it's the information age. So sometimes, and because we have identity crisis everywhere, sometimes we, we want to be somebody else's identity, so we actually know more about their identity than we do our own identity. Hello, do you, you see what I'm saying? So what I'm saying is not just if you're Jewish, learn about church history. If you're, if you're Gentile, learn about Jewish history. I'm saying you really need to know both. Because most people don't even know their own history. Especially Americans, we have this identity crisis because we don't have a specific ethnicity or, or heritage, national heritage, right? Depends who you are. I realize that it doesn't apply to everybody. Many people do. It just depends. This is complicated. We're talking about identity. Okay. So in learning this history, remember my emphasis was that the goal is deference. The goal isn't knowledge. If the goal is knowledge in this pursuit, it leads to pride and arrogance. If the goal is deference, 
It will lead to unity and not division. People want me to be more practical. This is practical. I'm going to give you some examples. History is rather large. Jewish history and church history is very big. So, what should I do? Here's what I suggest. You look at some of these topics and pick the one that sounds interesting to you. And start there. You know what I do with my daughter Cassidy? She's learning to read. I mean, she she reads now. Leah taught her, which was really cool, but... What we tried to do was find books that she was interested in so that she would like reading and not hate reading. So we didn't just give her the catechism, the Roman catechism, and say, this is your reading for this week. We're learning about church history, right? We try, try to get her books that are interesting to her, and then we give her the catechism, right? <laughs> So, start with what's interesting to you. Here's some examples. Church councils, crusades, inquisitions, plural. The inquisition actually didn't really end, if you didn't know, know till the end, or the, really the middle of the 19th century in Italy. And it began in the 1400s, and then had many variations. So a rough 450-year history within the Inquisition. Again, this is why Israel and the Jewish people aren't real excited to observe Christmas. Okay? Let's have some deference for that reality. We have the Protestant Reformation. This is now back to the Jewish people. The Messianics, boy, they are not not happy with the Protestant Reformation because why? Well, Martin Luther is the theologian of the Holocaust, if you didn't know. So this is complicated emotional stuff here, right? But let's learn about the Protestant Reformation and not just read the highlight on Facebook and you might actually see that God used certain aspects of the Protestant Reformation. And was there a bunch of junk? Absolutely. But that's the story of humanity and human history. When you begin to study and learn, it grows this deference for God. And you begin to say, wow, God, you are so gracious. I would not have done that. I wouldn't have allowed that. Who are you? You preserved your son's name through the church? That is not the way I would have done it. That is embarrassing. I don't want anything to do with the church. You preserved the Jewish people through rabbinic Judaism? What kind of plan is this? This is the sovereign plan of God, and history proves it. This is not debatable. This is, the, this is the story of human history. He preserved his people through rabbinic Judaism and all of its problems and faults and legalism and anti-Yeshua, anti-his son, and preserved his son while the church hated his people. Who is this God? It points, do you see the deference? 
you're just like going to fall on your knees. Who are you? And then he says, oh yeah, and I want it all to come back together. And you're like, what are you talking about? How could that, how could that happen? You would have to do that to be this miraculous work of God to do this. And he said, yeah. And there's nine angels standing up here. And they're holding torches. And they're proclaiming the good news of the birth of my son on Hanukkah. Who could do this? How do we do this? I don't know. But I'm willing to try. And there's a lot more history. I, I, I won't go into all of them. We have the Great Awakenings, revival histories. But we also have the pogroms, the Pale of Settlement. We have Jewish and Christian Zionism helped establish the modern state of Israel. We have the Holocaust. I mean, there's so much that we can learn and grow in our deference through this knowledge of history. And I want to promote a book because Dan Juster, it's called The Passion for Israel. And he actually, of all Messianic Jews that I'm aware of, Dan gets this way beyond me. So much so, he's, he's mined the beauty of the church. He didn't just mine the catechisms of the church to find the anti-Jewishness in there. And let me tell you, it's in there. But he also mined it to find the beauty and the pro-Israel things. And he said, just like we do when we share people about the good news, we try to find the good in that person. And through that good, we bring the good news, right? Because they're an image bearer, whether they know Yeshua or not. And you find that good in the person and you draw it out. And you can unify on that and then more revelation comes. And you can have this passionate identification with the other one. Which is really called love. And what's interesting, if you read many salvation testimonies of Jewish people today, they usually come to know Yeshua through a Christian who knew more about their God than they did. That's the most common testimony, I think. And they, they, were, they were annoyed. They were provoked to jealousy because this Goy, this Gentile, knows more about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob than they do. And they're like, hey, wait a minute. You know, something's off here. And so this is a way that the nations can provoke Israel to jealousy. So I have homework for you. That's right. Shabbat homework. I want you to read the first and second book of Maccabees. It's not biblical. It's extra biblical. It is a part of the Apocrypha. But I want you to read the story of Hanukkah. And I want you to read it 
the way that it's recorded. This is written a couple hundred years or 160-something years before Yeshua. Okay? What's that? Yeah, Debbie. We, we've quoted from it today, exactly. Yeshua was very familiar with this story, let me tell you. The, I mean, the entire culture of the first century was informed by the Hasmonean Maccabean uh, revolt. They, they ruled independently for 100 years about, up until 63 BCE. So they're, they're coming off of this independence before Rome took over. And I, I have a website, if, if you can put that slide up here. You can read it on BibleGateway.com for free. Okay? You don't have to go buy it. You can read the NRSV version, which is the, the very approved translation. There's other translations, but it's the New Revised Standard. You can read it for free, and I would encourage you to do so. Okay, now I want to end with this. Four examples specifically of Hanukkah history, because I'm wanting us to grow in learning history, so I'm going to give you four things that may, you may or may not know about Hanukkah, okay? Number one, the miracle of the oil. Has anybody not heard of the miracle of the oil in here? Okay, but the miracle of the oil is basically this, that when they uh, defeated Antiochus and the Syrians, the Jewish people went to rededicate the temple and to relight the menorah that's in the holy place, and there was only one uh, day's worth of oil. And so it takes like a week to produce new oil. And so what did they do? They light the the menorah anyway in faith. And then sure enough, a miracle happens and it burns every day, all eight nights until they're able to produce more oil. Now, the problem, of course, that I want to bring up, because we're talking about history, is that that story is not in the book of Maccabees at all. When you read it as your homework, you'll find out it's actually not in there. In fact, it, it's not even brought up for the first time until it's not even in the Mishnah, which is codified around 220 A.D. And there's reasons for that I won't get into. It doesn't come until later in the Gemara, which is part of the Talmud, rabbinic writings, right? And the Gemara is really uh, sayings about the Mishnah, and there we have this introduction of this story. Now, am I saying the story doesn't matter or that the story isn't true? Not necessarily. Here's what it does, and I want you to see the beauty of this, whether it's true or not true, okay? I tell it to my kids. It communicates the essence of the Maccabean story. It communicates the essence of Hanukkah. Because Hanukkah is basically this, a miraculous salvation of the Jewish people by God as he saves his people through their zeal for the Torah and the covenant. And so this this is so Hebraic. I want you guys to capture this. We all want to grow in our understanding of this Hebraic mindset. This story captures a Hebraic reality. Whereas they told this story 
and it communicates through this story the bigger story. Do you see it? Without having to say, now here's why it's important, son, right? And you go through and here are the six points, right? It captures the essence of the whole story, that God did a miracle. And it saved the Jewish people. And that they were called to this fidelity, this faithfulness to the covenant. Boom. Which probably argues that it wasn't true. But you still tell the story. It's like a parable, right? You don't not tell parables because Yeshua told parables that probably weren't true. Did you know that? But that's not the point. You tell it. It's a midrash. It's, it's, you, you, you tell the story to communicate the essence. Okay. Is that helpful? Did anybody know that? It's good. Tell the story. Kids are not going to read the entire book, two books of Maccabees. There's really four, but I'm just encouraging you to read the first two. You can read three and four. It's a little different. But your kids aren't going to read the book of Maccabees because hardly anybody in here has ever read the book of Maccabees. Maybe I'm wrong. Okay, number two, Hanukkah is a celebration of Sukkot plus the eighth day. This is really cool. Why is Hanukkah eight days? Ever asked that question? Why eight? I mean, all the other uh, minorot are seven. Then we have this special menorah. A Hanukkah is still a menorah, but it's a special menorah that has nine candles on it. Why? Because it's a celebration of Sukkot. If you pull up the slide, it says, yes, they celebrated it for, this is in the second Maccabees. They celebrated it for eight days with rejoicing because Sukkot is about joy, right? In the manner of the festival of booths, remembering how not long before, during the festival booths, they had been wandering in the mountains and caves like wild animals. So they're reenacting Sukkot. And if you remember, in 2 Chronicles 7, Solomon dedicates his temple, the original temple. And it's the glory of God fills the temple so much so, if you remember, the priests can't even stand and minister, right? It's this amazing scene. You should go and read it. But if you don't realize it, this whole scene of the dedication of the original temple happens during Sukkot. And so, what does Hanukkah mean? It's the feast of dedication, right? Because they're rededicating the temple. So they're seeing this connection. They knew their Bibles, okay? And they said, this is like Sukkot. And we missed Sukkot because of the Syrians. And so we're rededicating. And so we're redoing Sukkot. So there's every reason to celebrate. Because remember... Hanukkah is all about the zeal for the Torah and the covenant. That's their whole uh, emphasis of the Maccabees. Okay, so Hanukkah is not a traditional appointed time, but it's likened unto the other Moadim. Okay, number three. Hanukkah as the festival of lights. Now, Hanukkah happens on the 25th of Kislev. That's when it begins, okay? Christmas in the Western calendar begins when? 
The 25th, right? That's interesting. Coincidence? I don't know. Guess what the 25th word in the Hebrew Bible is. In Hebrew. Light. Or. What does that mean? I have no idea. (laughs) But. (laughs) But I want to point this out. The rabbis and rabbinic history points out that during Sukkot, they had four 84-foot minarot in the women's court, just outside where the sacrifices on the altar happened. The women's court where everybody could go, well, at least all the Jews could go. But even if you're a Gentile in the, in the Gentile courts, I mean, this is eight stories tall. Four Menorot. And it says, according to the rabbis, that the priest's garments that they wore to minister, when they would wear out, they would use their garments as the wicks for the menorahs. And they would climb the 84-foot menorahs. And this is the context that we see in John chapter 8, where Yeshua is in the temple, and he stands up and he says, I am the light of the world. I am the light. I mean, you have to imagine, the old city of Jerusalem sits up on a hill. This is Mount Zion. You could see it from the Mount of Olives. You could see it for miles and miles. And he says, you think that's light? I am the light of the world. And so, in my family, we include John chapter 8, when we light the Hanukkah for the eight days. All right, my fourth and last point. The Maccabees, and this one's the, the shocker. So stay with me, don't get mad at me. The Maccabees intentionally chose the dating of Hanukkah because of the pagan roots of the day. I'll say it again. The Jewish people intentionally chose the dating of Hanukkah because of the pagan roots of the day. Ironically, we actually have no evidence that the Christian church, the early church, intentionally chose December 25th because of its pagan roots. Now, many assume that, okay, and it may or may not be true, I'm not weighing in, I'm saying we don't have any historical literary evidence that says that we chose this. But we do have historical evidence, I'm going to show you in just a minute, that the Maccabees, the Jewish people, intentionally chose a pagan date to start Hanukkah. Wow. But I thought we couldn't do that. Well, let's look at it. The climax we see, if you want to pull up the verse, of the story of Hanukkah, and we read it. Debbie actually read it. All these terrible things. Basically saying, and it was, it's amazing in the text, it says that, we just, that Antiochus just wanted one people. This homogeny. No Jews. We're all just one people. No distinctions. Right? And he says this. First Maccabees. 
Every month on the 25th day of the month, they offered sacrifice on the altar that was on top of the altar of burnt offering. What happened was, is they took pig sacrifices and they put it on top of God's holy altar and poured out the blood of the pig on the altar to mock the Jewish people and to mock their God, more importantly. And it even says, and we we had a different translation that we read this morning, that this was the abomination of desolation. And Yeshua refers to the abomination of desolation in Matthew 24, and then he says, let the reader understand. Which I think points to multiple fulfillment of prophecies, but that's another teaching. If you don't believe me, I'll keep going, give you some more evidence. 2 Maccabees chapter 6. On the monthly celebration of the king's birthday, the Jews were taken under bitter constraint to partake of the sacrifices. Scholars suggest that the 25th of the month was the monthly celebration of Antiochus's birthday. And lastly, and most clearly here, after the Maccabees are victorious, God saves the day, they've been zealous for the Torah and the covenant. This is what 1 Maccabees 4 says. Early in the morning on the 25th day of the ninth month, which is Kislev, which begins tonight, in 164 BC, they rose and offered sacrifice as the Torah directs on the new altar of burnt offering that they had built. And here's the key. At the very season and on the very day that the Gentiles had profaned it. The Jewish people intentionally chose a day that had pagan roots to celebrate God's victory. This is what the book of Maccabees says. This was the pagan king's birthday, this was the sacrilege of the holy altar. And they said, that's the day we want. They weren't afraid of some day being pagan or not being pagan. They said, it points to the victory of God over the gods of this earth. And so it points to this matter of a day being pagan or not being pagan, it's not that question as much as what is your heart intention behind your observance? Whether it's Hanukkah, whether it's Christmas. Look, I know people who celebrate Christmas who love God. And they never mention Yeshua's birth at all. They do the presents. They don't worship the tree. They love God. They go to church. Not one mention of Yeshua's birth. I'm saying it's about your heart. It's about what are you doing? Is it an obligation? Or is it thanksgiving? Hosea 6, 6 says this famously. I desire, it's usually translated mercy and not sacrifice. The Hebrew word in, is, for mercy here is chesed, 
which is this word that communicates almost everything, I feel like. But I want to translate it here, and it can be translated as covenantal love. He's saying, I desire covenantal love, not sacrifice. It's not that he doesn't want them to do the sacrifices. That's, he's a rabbi. He, he, he's shocking us out of our apathy and our conformity and our sin so that we'll get right. Because he's after relationship. And here's the struggle. For the Jew, the struggle is How do you make it not these covenantal expectations, not just about obligation, right? These are covenantal expectations on Israel and the Jewish. And so you have to do it. But how do you just not make it something you have to do every year? Because it should ignite covenantal love of God. And for the nations. This is the challenge, right? And for the Gentile, the challenge is to not get into pride and arrogance because you're really biblical now because I actually observe Hanukkah. And Yeshua observed Hanukkah in John chapter 10. And so I'm more biblical and spiritual than you are. Because even if you don't say that, that's what people hear. The question is, when you're doing that, do you really have this heart of thanksgiving to God and to the Jewish people for being invited to the celebration? Do you have this awe of, I got invited? I got invited? And that's why I'm saying, you could invite others too. Like, you could come too. Not, guess what I'm doing. You could come too. So we grow in deference, meaning that you grow in covenantal love. That's what deference really means, is love, that you're loving your neighbor as yourself. And I'll conclude with this. It's like a dinner party. The Jewish people are the hosts, and the Gentiles are the guests. And as a good host, the Jewish people, they want to go out of their way to make everybody feel comfortable, right? That's what a dinner host does. You're, you're, you're spending all this work to make it comfortable for your guests. And as the guest, you're to be very gracious, right? And very careful and thankful. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. And you have this grace on you. You're just thankful to be there. You didn't have to cook, as my wife would say. I don't care what we eat. You're so thankful that you get to even be there. But the difficulty, of course, is that to the Jewish people, they didn't ask God to be the dinner hosts. I've yet to meet a Jew who's like, oh, this is really going well for me. This is great. I'm so thankful. This is hard. They didn't ask to be the denter hosts, and yet their very identity is to be the hosts of the whole world. Can you imagine? They're to host 
this dinner for the whole world. And really, not because they're bad people, but most Messianic Jews would really just prefer to invite their own family to dinner. Not because they're bad people, but it's more comfortable. And the Gentiles, most of the Gentiles are saying, why do I need to come to dinner at your house? I host my own dinners all the time without you. And the food is great. In fact, I have the heavenly food. I have the bread of life. What do I need you for? Do you see? And yet if we don't come together and eat dinner together, we'll never become the fullness of who God created us to be. We won't reach our destinies in Yeshua. And most importantly, we actually delay His return. And we delay the full salvation of Israel. And we delay the redemption of the world. To summarize, Hanukkah is about the miraculous salvation of the Jewish people. And it's a call for Jewish faithfulness to the Torah and the covenant. Remember, the Jewish people were saved because the Maccabees were zealous for the Torah and the covenant. Yes, God does the salvation, but He partners with them out of their zeal for covenantal faithfulness. And let's remember to be intentional and take advantage of this season because whether it's Jew or Gentile, Christmas or Hanukkah, people know that this time of the year is about God. And they're open to talking about it. And we can spread the light of the world to our family and friends. Amen. And let's learn about Jewish history and church history. But unto deference for God and deference for humanity, let's pray. So, Father, I pray that we would grow in covenantal love for one another, that we would grow in covenantal love in our marriages, in our relationships, that we would grow in deference for one another, that we would, we would ask questions during this season about others and not just talk about ourselves. How are you doing? How's your family How can I serve you? May we learn about each other. May we grow into your image as we proclaim your good news in this season. Hallelujah. Chag Sameach. Merry Messiahmas. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Shabbat Shalom.